You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon text today is from Ephesians 5, 6 through 14. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. For when you were in darkness, for you were once in darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's word. Thank you, Alyssa, and good morning to everyone. It is so good to be with you as we continue. I'm going to set this to the side if that's in your way. Um, As we continue on our series, and for those visiting with us uh, or not regularly with us, I'm Chad. I'm one of the pastors, um, as I always never introduce myself, but that's okay. Um, I'm one of the pastors here with King's Cross, and we normally are going to go through books of the Bible. We're normally going to be walking through books of the Bible just because, um, as a practice, we like to walk through texts that we might normally not randomly pick ourselves and see where God would expose in His Word Um, his truth. And we're going to continue to do that, but this week in particular, we're on a series that's going through uh, really what is spiritual warfare, the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of light. And we have been, we have been speaking the last couple weeks, the first week, this is the third week. um, The first week we talked about darkness and its, its work in this world, the way that it's penetrated in from the beginning when God first created all things good. And we saw how darkness permeated that good creation and began to wreak havoc. Um, And from there, we then quickly went to last week where God conquered that darkness. God actually had victory over that darkness. I want us to be very clear and understand as believers that we stand in the victory that Christ has already won. And, And as we continue studying this, And as we continue to look at the text of Scripture, as we continue to hear where God leads us, the important question we have is, now what? If God has already established and triumphed over darkness, why is there so much evil still around us? And why are we still here? And what are we to do? What do we do in this kind of middle time, if you will. It's actually uh, known among those, uh, maybe you've heard this phrase, it's a theological, I like to throw this term around, but this, this period of already, but not yet. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Uh, the idea is prevalent that comes from uh, what we see in the story of King David in the Old Testament, where King David was anointed as king over Israel, and he was already technically king, but he was running in the woods or in the wilderness from Saul, who's trying to kill him, who was sitting on the throne. So he was not yet enthroned over Israel. He was in this in-between. He's wandering, he's running in the wilderness for his life, he's facing all forms of evil, and he doesn't have all the power and authority in Israel that is really his, as God had anointed him for that position. And so now we're in this, this same kind of position, this already but not yet. Why is God even tarrying? Why is he waiting? And last week as I was talking about God's victory in Christ, what I didn't actually uh, really, I feel I didn't stress for you is that one of the the major reasons that we see God tarrying is because of his long-suffering and patience. And that he, in fact, as as even the Davenport shared earlier, he is tarrying and waiting to draw all people to himself. The phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles, those who are lost, he's waiting for that to return and make all things new. And we don't know what that number is. We don't have a calc on that. There's no calculation. There's no set amount. We know the apostles in the earlier church were like going like crazy, gangbusters, trying to reach all the, the areas they knew with the gospel, knowing and believing that they might even accomplish in their lifetime what is the finality of bringing in the Gentiles. So let's get Jesus back. 
They didn't have a, they didn't have a framework, but God knew that the world was much bigger and there was many, many more people that God wanted to bring in. And here's one of my challenges to you. How many of us in here today, how many of you in here today, if God wasn't patient and he didn't wait and he wasn't long-suffering, would either not exist or had died outside of the kingdom of God? And because of his patience and his love and his kindness, you and I, who are believers in Christ, can say, we are in the family of God, that, that Jesus Christ is our brother who has paid the price for our sin, and we can know God in his fullness. And that's why he waits. So what do we do in the, in the, in the middle? What do we do in between? Well, we, we live in a world, I tell you what, I'm going to pray for our time here because I'm with the Spirit with us. I've got a big giant note that says pray right here in front of me. And I always just like, oh, wait. Because I want us to pray that the Spirit be with us as we move through this text. Because we're going to dig into Ephesians and we're going to start to uncover a little bit about what, what portion of what God is doing in us and what he's called us to be. So let's pray together. Father, I ask in your kindness that you join us here this morning, that your Spirit would fill me and fill us, that you would teach us and lead us into all wisdom. That in your kindness you would reveal from your scripture uh, what is good and right and holy. And that you would make us more like Christ. And I ask all this in his name. Amen. Amen. So we, we actually live in a world that is hungry for truth. It's hungry for truth. Honestly, um, I'm not as old as maybe you think I am. But I am older than maybe you think I am. Actually, yesterday I, got, I, I told somebody how old my age, and he was like, really? I didn't think you were that old. I was like, bless you. But, um, but I am old enough to be around long enough to realize, to see internet become more of a thing and be around, and that all of the, all of the, the promises of information that could be available to every person at any given time. I saw the, the advent of social media. Like, what is this weird thing about your face in a book? What was that? I didn't know what that was. And people having connectivity and being able to see each other and talk to each other and have access to all forms of data. Originally, maybe didn't know this. Internet was like a big conglomeration and a connection of essentially like um, scholarly writings and books. Like, not books, even just papers. They were just linking together, hyperlinks. It's just this weird thing. Okay. I, I, didn't, I wasn't involved with that. I'm not that old. All right, but... But, but it was the opportunity for us to gain more knowledge and more information. But at the same time, it's like we're starved for truth in the midst of so much information. In fact, people who are in the world who are in advertising space recognize this as an issue, who want to make money. They tell you that authenticity in your advertising is so important because people know when they're getting fleeced. You've seen it so much. If you've been on any page at any time, at any place, I mean, I remember one time I was wanting to buy, um, I, was, I was wanting to buy a replacement of our artificial tree at our house at one point. And everywhere I went was an artificial tree advertisement on every page, on every place, and everywhere I go at that time. Because you're getting advertised to all the time. And you're getting bombarded with messages all the time. And you're being told one story or another about how this is going to be great and this is going to be the best thing that happens to you. I remember an advertisement that said, change your TV, change your life. Big call, right? Promises. You know what? That is what I'm missing. I'm missing that really razor-thin OLED display. Honey, I'm going to go to the store. We can laugh about that, but the truth is the world is hungry for truth and Words like authenticity are thrown around all the time. To be authentic, to be your authentically true self and who you are. And the challenge is that in the midst of that search for authenticity and truth, there's a lot of delusion. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of lies. You can't trust your eyes. The internet's brought more truth, but then you have deep fake videos that are actually somebody else's face on somebody else's body. And while people are looking for authenticity, they realize and recognize that they can't quite get there, so they buy into the next big thing that's going to promise something for them, something that's going to save them, if you will, from their desperation. And what my challenge is to you today is that the Spirit of God 
in Christ has taken what is a dark, dark world and brought light into it. That, that when we said that Christ came and brought light into this world, we can't miss what, is God, what God is doing as he penetrates the lies that are all around us and tries to bring illumination to the truth of who he is and who he wants for his people that he's made. His desire to be with them. Remember we talked about Eden where heaven meets earth? Literally that he could walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. We were designed for relationship with God. And that was disrupted. That was disrupted as sin entered the world, and that was no longer a possibility. But God didn't give up. He didn't stop there. He wasn't going to be defeated. He really, probably like you and I, a lot of us, you ever had this? You had a project you're working on, and like, it gets to a point where it just doesn't go right, and you want to scrap the whole thing? God could have done that. He could have scrapped it all. But instead, he said, I'm not giving up. I'm going to pursue you, and I'm going to promise there's a way I'm going to get you out of this. And so we met fast forward to the flood, and he, and he slows down evil in the world. And we move forward even farther to where people continue to try to build up monuments to themselves at Babel. And he says, you know what? You guys aren't following me, but I'm going to call out a people. And I've got Abraham, and through him and his seed, we are going to bless the entire world. And that offspring was Christ Jesus. That one that through him he would. And so now while God calls out a people to himself, and we talked about in Exodus, he put his light in the middle of his people in that tabernacle. Now in Jesus, literally the light of the world enters in the body of a man. And as Jesus leads his disciples and teaches them and talks to them and tries to show them all truth, he pays the price, conquers death and and darkness on the cross and in his resurrection. And he tells them, I can't stay here with you. Because why? Because when I leave, the comforter, the spirit is going to come for you. And don't miss this, brothers and sisters. This is so important. That the light of Christ in the spirit of God came into the world, not to be a tabernacle in the middle of his people, not to dwell in the person of Christ just alongside his people, but to literally dwell within his people. So that those who follow after God have the Spirit of God in them. And what I would propose to you today, and what I want us to see today, is that what, what Aaron mentions before, when he talks about the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he quotes Jesus. He says his mission out of the gate in Luke 4, 18-19. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. How? Why? Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to recover the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And now, brothers and sisters, believers, the light of Christ is working in and through you to do that same thing. The light of Christ in this already but not yet is working in and through you and I to expose the works of darkness in this world. To expose the works of darkness in this world. And we're going to look at Ephesians 5, 6-14 as a snapshot, a space and time where Paul the Apostle is writing to the Ephesians and he is encouraging this in this very specific way how they walk as children of light. Those who the Spirit of God rests in And the light of Christ is in this world. So read with me as we start this, as we look at this. Because what we see in this text is that first, the light of Christ opposes the works of darkness. Ephesians 5, 6 through 8. The light of Christ opposes the works of darkness. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of of these things. The first thing Paul out of the gate says is that darkness is deceptive and don't be deceived. All right? Darkness is at work in this world. The disobedient follow after it. Don't be deceived. Who's deceiving? Who is deceiving? Is it in the church? It's outside the church? That's actually a question about this text. It's like, who's he talking about in the previous verses of chapter 5? He has reference to sexual sin. He makes reference um, to false teachers. And the truth is, both. We can be deceived inside the church. There's many of us, and don't, be, don't believe for a moment that even if the Spirit of God is in you, that you aren't 
susceptible to hearing lies and following after them. Those are there. That's, that's a very real possibility. It's why Paul says don't be deceived by it. So those who are deceived in the church can also lead people astray with empty arguments. But the other truth of that is that we live in a world where, Paul, where Jesus told us, he said, I don't ask that you be pulled out of this world, but that you live in this world. And that you live in this world as ones who are set apart from the world. So we're going to be walking and working and living and shopping and have family and friends that are in this world who believe lies too. And Paul's saying, let no one deceive you with empty arguments because God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Because they believed lies, because they pursued evil, because they went after things that are not honoring to God. Ultimately, the truth is the difference between darkness and light is a contrast between truth and a lie. I mean, that's exactly what Romans 1, 18 through 25 says when Paul tells the Romans, he says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. Paul's suggesting here that the very important core truths about who God is can be clearly seen by what's around you. And the fact is that people who deny that are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And for that reason, God's wrath is being poured out on the world. Can can I tell you, it is not illogical or irrational to look at the world around you and conclude that there's a God. In fact, Paul says it is the most logical conclusion. Don't let anyone deceive you from that. In fact, if you want to, the creation of the universe is probably the best place to start with that. Like, where'd this all come from? That, that, that we believe that all things have a source in some fashion, but even philosophers from old and ancient said there was an unmoved mover. There was an uncaused cause, if you will. That something had to start all things. Something had to start time. It's not an irrational, illogical thing. If anything, it is the most rational conclusion. And the fact of the matter, if you've ever seen this before, and I have, there are many within an atheistic community, scientists, who are so adamant to suppress that reality that there could be a God. Don't argue, don't argue about what text of Scripture and the fine tooth. Don't get distracted by that. That there could be a God who started all things that they would actually accept the fact that maybe aliens showed up and started us. They've heard it. It's really out there. It's true. And we still get into that continuing trail. Okay, where the aliens come from? Where they, okay? It's not illogical. It is not irrational. And Paul says, in fact, it's so clear that God's eternal power and his divine nature is present, his invisible attributes, that God is right to pour his wrath out because we refuse to believe it. And then he goes down in verse 25 and he summarizes again what happens as they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. They took all those things in front of them, the truth of who God is, what he has made, how he's designed his divine power, and rather than serve and worship him, they looked at the creation around and begin to set their hearts on that. That would be my fulfillment. That would be my, my absolute goal. I would worship, as it says here, and serve what's been created instead of giving honor that's due to the God who's made it all. You know, lies is how we saw sin into the world when we talk about Eden. What is it that the serpent asked Eve? Did God really say that? That's the heart if you're a believer, if you haven't had that question pop up in you, you're, I don't necessarily believe you. You probably have faced that very reality of looking at what Scripture says and you kind of, our, our, our tendency to try to justify things or to move away from Christ. When we see this, we, we hear the same lie that is present here in Eden. Did God really say that about your life? Did God really say that's how you should live? Did God really say this is necessary for you? 
John 8, 44 tells us that lies is the language of the enemy. That when he tells a lie, that, that Satan speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. The whole world is deceived by that because he continues to deceive people in that. And when we spoke about the works of darkness in the world, we have to realize that there is intelligent evil at work and that it carries lies with it. And listen, the enemy is not omnipresent. The enemy is not omniscient. The enemy is not omnipotent. There's not all power and authority in them, but they're not dumb. It wouldn't be a good lie if it wasn't believable or if it couldn't deceive you. And they have got plenty of time and experience and creativity to come up with the ones that work. So let's not be deceived by that. Because the world around us is believing these lies about God, that he is not good and glorious, that he is withholding something from us, about us, that we are the main characters in this world, about humanity, that the world is here to serve our needs. And they ask questions like Pilate when he stood before Jesus, where he says, what is truth? Is truth really a thing? How about you follow your truth and I'll follow my truth? And often the accusation is leveled against us as believers is that it's arrogant for Christians to believe they've cornered the market on truth. Look, it can be arrogant and we can handle it in an arrogant way. And those that oppose God might level that claim. But when you know and believe the truth of God, it doesn't produce arrogance in you. Galatians, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If the Spirit of God is in you and working, you're not arrogant. And those who bring the Spirit of, those who bring the truth of the gospel, those who try to bring religion on people with arrogance, aren't speaking the word of truth. And the Spirit of God is not working through that. So we know that the spirit of darkness, that God's opposed to that. But how does he work that out? How does he oppose darkness? Well, Emmanuel, being Jesus, is with us. God is with us. Ephesians 5, 7 through 8 says this, Therefore do not become their partners. Why? For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world, walking as children as light. Walk as children as, as light. Excuse me. Children of light. At creation, Eden was God's holy mountain. It was his place where heaven meets earth. In Exodus, God tabernacled with his people. Now Jesus is the one who comes to be with his people. And he tells them that you are children of light in John 12, 35 through 36, where he tells them the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. So what's the solution? To walk while you have light, to walk with the light so darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. And while you have light, he's talking to his disciples, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. And Jesus said this and then went away and hid from them. Side note, this really stood out to me. I love the end of that. My introvert heart kind of connected with Jesus there. Jesus said this and then he went away and hid from them. He needed to get some quiet time. Didn't say he went to be with the Father. He's just like, I'm done with people for a minute. I need to go hide away. But what did he say to them? He said, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you become children of light. So when Paul tells them you are children of light, it's because they believed in the light. The first and foremost thing about Emmanuel being with us, Jesus Christ being God with us, is that we must have belief and trust in him. I'm not talking about a blind faith. I'm not talking about just going after whatever you can't see. This is also the accusation of faith is just, I believe something because I want to. I've got no proof and evidence of it. But I, I suggest to you what he's saying is to put your faith and trust in God because of who he is and what he's done. To believe in him is what makes us children of light, that the spirit would dwell in us. And then as God fills his people, that they would fill the world with the light of the gospel. Do you see that? Now where the tabernacle resided at one place and where Jesus came into the world as one light, now he fills all his people with the light of Christ and they cover the earth with his light. Everywhere we go, we carry the light of the kingdom with us because it's in you. Where God's people dwell, there is divine presence. 
in this room as we come together, God is with us. Now the light is in us and opposing the darkness. So what do we do? How do we live in such a way to oppose the darkness? Reading on in verses 8, 8b and 10. The reason I'm reading 8b through 10. The light of Christ is at work in God's children. What's he doing? For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. How many here love grammar? I see all those hands. I love it. Everybody's a... You ever diagram sentences? That was big when I was in school. I'm going to make a confession. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I had a, I had a grammar teacher aunt. Okay. Um, she still does it today. I'm going to propose this to you. If you don't love grammar, grammar is super important. Okay. In scriptural study, if you're going to study the Bible, it's really important because it affects a lot of things. In fact, fun fact, in Matthew 22, 32, Jesus used grammar to make a theological argument. Are you familiar with that? Sadducees came up. They don't, they don't believe in, in resurrection of the dead. They said, Jesus. They were like giving him grief about being re- this, uh, resurrection, about bodily resurrection, that people really came back to life, okay? And he said, am, doesn't it say that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is God the God of dead people? Wait, if I am their God and they're not here, they just stay dead. Am I the God of dead people? That's what he, that, he, grammar, Jesus loves grammar. Here's the reason I'm bringing it up. And this sentence, verse 9, is parenthetical. Okay? Not part of the main primary sentence. Okay? Here's the reason I'm getting that I want to make this point for you. is because I want us to see what is walking as children of light as far as Paul is telling us. He's saying, walk as children of light, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay? It's not a new thought. It's not, it's a together thought. And that's important here because when we read that and we say walk as children of light, testing what is pleasing to the Lord, that we can start to think, what does it mean to walk as children of light? Well, Paul says it's testing what is pleasing to the Lord. And this sounds very familiar to another passage where he talks to Romans and tells them in chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern or test, tempt, realize, test, discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. So, so God wants to first work in his children as we walk after light. As we walk as children of light, he wants to first change us in the inside. He's transforming us from the inside out. And what Paul says here, testing what is pleasing, discerning what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, that as God renews our mind and changes us on the inside, then we know better on the outside what is pleasing to God in our life. I don't have that all nailed down. I'll be the first one to tell you. Probably some of you probably are well, some, I know in here you are well beyond me in figuring some of those things out because we are growing in Christ and God is renewing our not minds day by day by day and that's, that's why I suggest to you as you are in God and spirits in you that you're, not, you're not arrogant about that you celebrate everything that God is and all that he's done but you're humble because you know your position before him and that you have so much farther to grow And what I want to point out to you is a few primary ways in which I want to encourage us as we look on the inside of our hearts. What is it that we do? How do we pursue and renew our minds so that we can continue to discern what is good and pleasing and perfect will of God? The first I'm suggesting is to prayer and spirit, prayer and trusting in the spirit of God in you. I think that sentence isn't correct what I put there, but regardless. Prayer and the spirit of God working in you, okay? When, when Jesus left, he told him when the spirit of truth comes, he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to bear witness to you about what is true. Brothers and sisters, as we have the spirit of God in us, we have God speaking in us and leading us in wisdom and truth. We can suppress that and we can push that down, but he has promised to be with you. 
And we have prayer, and I'm encouraging you in prayer because not only is God in you talking to you, but you have the opportunity to speak to him. That every day as you rise, or all throughout the day, as Paul continues to remind us, praying continuously because the Spirit's with you. If you don't have an ongoing dialogue with God, you're missing out, I'm just telling Even honest, like, conversation where you're just admitting stuff like, probably shouldn't have done that, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me for that. I have a couple, couple gauges. I have the one where you're on the knees and they're intentionally praying over certain specific things, and then I have that one. I have that one where I'm like, I know I messed up there. Or, thank you for the opportunity. God, appreciate what just happened there. Just speaking to God and knowing that the Spirit of God is in you. And my challenge to you is this, as we trust in the Spirit of God, also know simultaneously that we are not perfect and that our heart can be deceptive. So what you might gauge as the Spirit of God, we need to test because it could be our own heart. Serious warning here. Jeremiah 17 says the heart is more deceitful than anything else. And in Matthew 15, Jesus warned, he said, out of the heart, from the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So here's the reason I'm bringing that up. Even as I encourage you to follow after the Spirit of God, like gangbusters, do not pray to God. Follow after, look for his leading, test it. test it. And that's the rest of what I'm going to continue today. And the reason I'm definitely encouraging this, if you haven't seen it already within the church, in person, you will. I've seen a man say that he felt the Spirit was leading him to leave his wife to marry a girl he met on the internet. I've seen multiple men in active ministry roles who, one, walked away from his wife and kids after someone he met and said he just stopped believing the Bible because it was inconvenient. I've seen a man preaching. I'm talking about this. I was preaching. So I, I've seen, I know a man who almost left his family, but praise God, they were restored because he was pursuing someone else and he was deceived and his desires were leading him. I've seen a man who, through really difficult times of sickness in his home, turned to alcohol as a medicine and slowly drifted away. He was pursuing ministry. He wanted to go to be trained. He wanted to pastor a church. And now he's with another woman and he's left his four kids and his wife. I've seen men who are wielding God's will as a weapon while actively emotionally abusing their spouse. Claiming it's God's position, it's where he has them. I've seen a former missionary who left his wife and his two kids for another And I've seen one woman who committed adultery and has actively used her children as pawns to destroy her ex-husband for over a decade. This is my warning to you. The heart is deceptive. Follow and pray after God's Spirit to lead you, but let's test it. And how do we do that? I would say first and foremost by the Word of God. All Scripture is profitable and God-breathed. It is something that we can trust and follow after and we can read as the Spirit, and we pray, illuminates us to see what is right in the text. We have God's Word before us. He has given by inspiration His truth in here. And we can follow after that. The Spirit is leading me to this direction for us to... I'm sorry. The, sp- the Spirit leads you into truth and, and uses God's Word as a tool, as a method as a, to expose what is right in front of our eyes. And then finally, I would encourage inside the body of Christ because the same Spirit that's in me is in all of you. You know, when Paul was talking with the Berean churches, they were searching the Scripture and checking out what he was saying. When I'm up here teaching, you can search the Scripture and challenge me. Because as God leads me into truth, as I see what I see before me and want to teach, I want to make sure we grow together as a body. And the body of Christ is a gift from God that he can change us from the inside as he continues to lead us and renew our minds together. You know, it's a, um, it's a misunderstanding where you know, Aaron and I are in a worldly view seen as leaders, pastors who are in charge 
I would, I would actually, and this is a whole other probably sermon series or lecture, whatever, study. There's a, the disconnect is often what Jesus pointed out to his people, that the church doesn't see leadership the way the world does. That leadership in the world is connected directly with authority. God tends to connect leadership with responsibility. And he says that the first will be last. And that the leader is the servant of all. And he demonstrated that when he washed his disciples' feet. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because as we are the body of Christ, though we might have responsibilities and God may have gifted us for the body in different ways from you, we are all one body with one Lord and that we're accountable to you. And let's keep it that way. Keep us accountable that we might grow together. Because ultimately what God wants to do is he changes you from the inside is he wants us to then bear the fruit of light on the outside. Ephesians 5, 8, or Ephesians 5, 9 says that parenthetical statement, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. As God transforms us from the inside, he changes the way we see things and we live on the outside. That as we are lights in this world, we go towards goodness, righteousness, and truth. And most specifically, where the lies were deceive, the lies deceive us on how we see God, see ourselves, and see others. Rather, righteousness and truth and light reveals to us the right way we should see God. How he stands as divine power and authority in all goodness. And that what he does is good and right and holy. And that we should see ourselves humbly before God. That as we rest uh, in his goodness that we know that we're not perfectly good and have so much way, so far to grow. And then finally, how we see others because that affects the way we live our life with one another. And it changes the way in which we interact. And what I see is the final part of this passage, the way that the light of Christ is working through God's children. Not only is he working in us to change us, but he's working through us to push back darkness. Look at 11 through 14. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. You're like a flashlight. Just turn on the light. Guess who gets to hide? Every form of evil gets to hide in darkness. But Paul says, don't participate, expose them. Bring those things to light because everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. There's two areas where I would challenge us this morning before we get out of here on where we'd be mindful to expose light. And the first one is inside our own body. Where I talk about God changing us from the inside, remember that people around you in the body of Christ, I encourage you to invite them to speak into your own life. In the same way, we need to be willing and able to speak into the lives of others within the body. What good is it if, if I'm ready to receive if no one's speaking to me? And what good is it if the Spirit of God is working in me and yet we are not working in one another's lives? To encourage one another. Not to, not to lord over anybody else and not to th throw criticism or ridicule, but like Paul says, to approach one another with love and humility and graciousness because we know that we could be the one in that same position later. And the, and the challenge that's given is that the reality is that as intelligent evil is working in the world, as, this, as the author of lies, Satan is working in this world, that he is absolutely trying to penetrate the church. Why would he not? Why would he not try to penetrate the church? It's the warning that Christ gives. It's the warning that Paul gives to be on your guard against false prophets. To be on a watch. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus talks about the narrow gate and the wide and the road that's broad that leads to destruction. If you may be familiar with that, if you're in the church, often given as a way of saying there's going to be less people that come to Christ than there are going to be to head out. It's much easier to go away from him into destruction. And that's true. But I've also seen where people point out the fact that this seems to also be connected directly with false teaching and the prevalence of that within the church. Specifically because in verse 15 of that same passage is when Jesus says, be on your guard against false prophets. That it seems like at narrow, tough, difficult times within the church that false teachings tends to be, tended to be less prevalent. But when things are wide open and easy and things are, 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 are it's, it's, it's profitable to be a pastor at a church or there's an opportunity for us to, 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 uh, to, to live an easy life, 
within and still be in the body of Christ or be a part and affiliated. Maybe it's socially acceptable and most people expect that you're going to be a good church member. That wide way can lead to destruction. And then immediately Jesus follows it up. Be, a, be on guard against false prophets because in that easy time, look at America. How many false teachers could we look and see out over the landscape right now? Matter of fact, if you've had any evangelistic opportunities, if you've spoken to any believer, the easy accusation is to point at those false teachers who are fleecing the sheep and to say, see, I told you the church is no good. Remember, the enemy is wise and he brings destruction by any means. And he's going to lead false teachers into the church and he's going to wreak havoc in that respect. And we need to be prudent and smart intelligent, looking at Scripture, praying and trusting the Spirit to lead us, and then leaning on one another as brothers and sisters, that we would, our minds would be renewed, and we would see what is good and right and pleasing to God. Not to be led astray by false teachers in the church. By God's grace, he's given us a body of faith to speak truth and love to one another, and that normally takes, that normally takes um, the shape of discipleship, everyday discipleship. It can be formal, You guys can get together and have a study. You can open up a book. You can read something. But you know what? Most discipleship happens over coffee, at lunch, hanging out in here. Whether we're encouraging one another, whether we are, um, we're simply giving an admonition, seeing something in someone's life that that maybe we're concerned about and we want to provide encouragement or, or ask questions about. And to have that door open because we have the groundwork and the foundation that we are all one in Christ and we love one another. And we want to encourage one another to know him and see him more. Ephesians 4, 7 through 13 is a very explicit example of Paul challenging believers to this very exact thing. And I actually want to drop down into verse uh, 11 where he talks about giving gifts. Paul is discussing giving gifts uh, that Jesus Christ has given gifts to the body of Christ. And then verse 11, he says, And he himself gave what kind of gifts? He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. So he talks about specifically those who might sit up in front of you and teach you or direct you or wizard, just, just teaching in general. There's, there are people in here today that aren't not up at this pulpit that can teach. Okay? So God gives those gifts. And Paul says those gifts are there. People who have discernment in the scripture and can learn and teach others and point them to things. And Paul says those gifts are things that God has given to people. And often we elevate some people that have these gifts. They give them a pulpit like this, right? Maybe they're charismatic. They get the opportunity to speak in front of crowds. And might it look like that's the aim of Christian ministry, is to be able to pastor, lead, shepherd, and be the one who directs the sheep. But what Paul says is the point of those gifts in verse 12 is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That your daily lives is the work of ministry. The Spirit of God in you is the one doing the work of ministry. For what purpose? To build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Saints, you do the work of ministry. Brothers and sisters, you are the ones who are doing ministry day in and day out with one another. We are one body with many members, members and, and we have so many gifted brothers and sisters here. Some of those are outward and recognizable gifts, but I know that we each have gifts because if you have the Spirit of God in you, God says he has gifted you. In Colossians three twelve through 17 is a passage that Paul is admonishing the people to do this very thing. And I want to give you categories for how he specifically talks about ministry with one another. In verse 16, he says this, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. That's just daily life together. The word of Christ is a treasure in our midst, a treasure that's buried in a field, a gift. You have the opportunity every day to strike a blow against the kingdom of darkness if you just speak. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among us, King's Cross, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. 
encourage one another daily to think and look more like Jesus. And that's how we make war on the kingdom of darkness, that it doesn't take a foothold in our family. And finally, the last way that, we ex- that, that uh, Christ is working through us is to expose darkness in the world. Not only is he exposing darkness within the church itself, that we encourage one another, but he's exposing darkness in culture. Christians are, should be the voice for the voiceless. We should see injustice in our world and not stay quiet about it. We should, we should know that Christ, <clears throat> that followers of Christ should be the greatest advocates for justice and mercy. James 1.27 said that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And when, Matt, and when Jesus was approached by, by the learned of his day, the religious people who were criticizing him, in Matthew 9.13, he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. They were missing the finer things, that we are exposing darkness in our culture and our world by exposing what is evil in front of our face and not being quiet about it. And we're pushing back darkness in practical and active ways by doing that. But we are also pushing back darkness by evangelism. So we're, we're living as disciples within the church. We are speaking against darkness that's around us in culture and the evil that's in our midst. But we're also desiring that God would, would become a, a, a matter of change in the hearts of people around us. We want to spread the light of the gospel into the lives of our neighbors. We want to spread the light of the gospel into people in Pakistan where the Davenports are going. We want to be a part of that change which continues to infiltrate darkness with the light of Christ. Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28 told us this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Maybe you're familiar with this passage because it's very popular. We've said it a few times in here. It's the Great Commission passage. It's often quoted as that missionary passage, and it's important. It's not to be set aside. God's command to his people to go and make more disciples. But I think what's really, really important is that we look at this not necessarily, that it's not just simply a, a project for us to undertake, that it's not for us to take in arrogance that we have some special task, but with humility and grace. And also, with the sight in our mind, as we were challenged earlier today, with the vision to see that God is doing something in our midst and that he has called us to be a part of it. And when we have the Spirit of God in us, changing us to be more like him, changing our minds and renewing him, renewing our minds to be, uh, to see the world with his eyes, we begin like Paul told the Corinthians from now on, to not know anyone from a worldly perspective, but from a spiritual one. That we see the spirits of darkness at work in this world and that we're combating them with Christ in us. That God is at work defeating darkness and bringing people into the kingdom through his children. And we begin to see the world differently because the light changes the way we see unbelievers. Rather, when we look around us, we don't see enemies to be conquered. Unbelievers aren't an enemy to be conquered. They're not someone to be battled and defeated. But rather, they're neighbors to be loved. In Luke, in the, in the story of the Good Samaritan, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? He pretty much said everybody. Well, he did say everybody. There's a sermon on that. We can go back to it if you want. Secondly, unbelievers are not obstacles to be avoided. What do I mean by that? Well, listen, you need discernment in your life and maybe you come from a past you need to avoid certain areas that you were in there attempting that's fine but an unbeliever is not simply set in front of you as someone you should pull yourself away from that they're not just rampant around here ready to tempt you into darkness again yeah those temptations are there but god said we're in this world don't avoid those who are in this world because they're not obstacles they're just ready to make you trip if you're in christ you should be Wise, and you should avoid deception, but rather what, what the gospel says is that they are captives to set free. 
Not in a patronizing way, like, hey, I know you're in slavery here, so let me help you out. But I like what, uh, I believe, theologian R.C. Sproul says. It's like one blind beggar trying to help another blind beggar find bread. With humility saying, hey, man, come on. There's, there's, there's life, there's bread here. And finally, that we don't see the unbelieving world as projects for us to take on. I've li- I have heard it said, hey, we can be friends, but man, I'm a, I, have, I have some believers I know that I feel like I'm a project to them. No, no, they are image bearers of God who are loved by God, who he desires to be a part of his family and who he wants to call home. And my final encouragement as we close today actually is the way in which you can speak about who God it is and what he's given. And I didn't want to make something up. I didn't want to write something. So I found I wanted to point you to scripture because Paul interacts in Athens with a group of people and he does exactly that. In Acts 17, 22 through 31. As you see darkness in the world, and you want to encourage brothers and sisters, look at this template of how he calls people into hope. He says, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every, every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the darkness, objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Remember the creator of the universe. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everything, everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they, so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. We declare that victory in Christ's resurrection. And we appeal, just like Paul, that they overlook the times of ignorance, but he commands everyone everywhere to now repent, to call them into hope in Christ. Let's be a light in this world.